Well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody online. Um, do you know, um, my name is Eric Birch. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And um, thank you, sir. Yes, I will sit. <laughs> I always feel kind of blue-collar doing that. But uh... All right, so how many people have watched the Charlie Brown Christmas? Yeah, a couple. <laughs> I love it. I've grown up as a kid. It was, you know, it's hard to believe it came out in 1965, right? And so um, I can remember watching it like. <laughs> so I can remember watching it as a kid all the time. And if you recall in the story, right, Charlie's got this job of going out and getting a Christmas tree. And, and very Charlie-like, he goes out and he finds not the world's greatest Christmas tree. He finds this sort of sad looking Christmas tree, and Charlie's that kind of a guy, you know, he's like, oh, this poor tree, um, I'll take it, take it back, this will be great, right? And of course, what happens is, you know, his nemesis, Lucy, um, shares what everybody else is thinking about this terrible job he's done picking out a tree. I've always, uh, you know, Lucy's kind of a, uh, an interesting character, you know, the, uh, I never got the part where she always took the football away when he went to kick it, you know, I just thought, yeah, once or twice, but over and over again, I mean, come on. It's, uh, but anyway, so, so of course Charlie Brown's just frustrated because everybody's, and he, and, he, and he cries out, doesn't anyone know what Christmas is about? And of course, of all characters, Linus gets up there and, he, and of course he reads the Christmas story. And um, I just love that. You know, I just, the fact that they picked Linus, right? And what does he do at the end? Takes his little blinky, sticks his thumb back in his mouth and walks off. You know, it's so cool. You know, um, so I've really, really enjoyed it. I've watched it many, many times. And, you know, Charlie Brown's just frustrated by the focus of Christmas is totally wrong, right? They're worried about the tree, and, and you know, I hate to tell them, but it hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> so, you know, we're in the Advent season, and Advent's really kind of cool because we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, but also the coming back of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the return. And it's, it's interesting, with all the stuff going on in the world today, I have lots of folks that, you know, oh, Eric, do you think the end times are coming? Yeah. I just don't know when, but yes, they're coming. I'm confident of that part. But, you know, they see wars and storms and earthquakes and politicals, all this. Oh, it's got to be near. Well, it's closer than it was. Uh, <laughs> don't exactly know when it's showing up. One thing I have figured out is that trying to predict it is probably a bad plan. Um, most people have not got it right yet. So, anyway, um, it's kind of interesting of why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And it's kind of along the lines of the same reason we celebrate Easter when we do. Um, the exact date that Jesus was crucified and rose on the third day is known. The exact day is known. On the other hand, we don't know the day of Jesus' birth. Um, there's a lot of discussion about it. One thing we're pretty certain, though, it was not December 25th. Um, if you look at the history and stars and all the stuff that was going on, it wasn't probably December 25th. So the dates of Christmas and Easter were actually established on pagan holidays, and there's some logic to that. Um, basically, when the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, became, you know, took on Christianity, he added these holidays that we celebrate in Christmas and Easter. Um, 
Now, the Council of Nicaea decided in 325 AD that Easter would be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal or spring equinox. Right? So that's why we celebrate Easter on any Sunday between March 22nd and April 25th. You know, and it's, of course, the whole thing about the, you know, the first full moon after the vernal equinox is a big pagan thing. December 25th uh, was uh, Christmas was first celebrated officially by the church in 336, again, during the reign of Constantine. And December 25th was also the, Roman, the day the Romans celebrated Sol Invictus, or the unconquered sun, and it was tradition to give out gifts. Um, it was also the birthday of the Indo-European deity Mithra, which was the god of light and loyalty, whose cult was growing at the same time that Christianity was growing in the Roman Empire. So Constantine sets up these two holidays to land on pagan holidays to try to distract people from the pagan holidays and establish Christian holidays. Now, if you're familiar with Constantine, Roman emperors were not really big on folks who disagreed with him. Um, <laughs> and so he says, okay, you're all going to celebrate Christmas and Easter, and here's how it's done, and he picked holidays they already knew about so that he could establish them. So pretty interesting way that they um, went about picking those. But the interesting part to me is that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, even though we have no idea when Jesus was actually born. And then we celebrate Easter on some random Sunday between March and April, even though we know exactly when he was crucified and resurrected. Kind of weird, right? And then the part that's really funny is all the people out there that celebrate Christmas and Easter and have no idea why. I mean, I ask people all the time, well, you celebrate Christmas? Oh, yeah, so you're a Christian. Well, not really. Why do you celebrate Christmas? Well, it's a good time for family, and, you know, we eat too much, and I'm like, yeah, but it's Christmas. You know, if you're not celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, you should, like, do it mid-January when they get a good deal on all the presents. <laughs> Same thing with Easter, right? You know, it's, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not a rabbit that lays eggs. Anyway, now you might wonder why I went on this little historical tangent, right? You're like, oh, Eric, why do you do this? You, you, obviously, that has nothing to do with your message, and that's true, it doesn't. Um, but I think the part that to me is really important is that while we celebrate Christmas and Easter as specific dates, we should not celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and his resurrection on a specific day, but continually throughout the year. Our gratitude for the birth of Jesus Christ and his resurrection should be in your prayers every day. You don't need a special day to celebrate. Now, to me, the whole concept of, of the birth of Christ is, is literally mind-boggling, right? So we have Jesus Christ, who had existed since before the beginning of time, comes to earth as a newborn child, born of peasants, in a manger, surrounded by the limitations of humanity for the next 33 years, so he could live a life of poverty, pick up the sins of mankind, get crucified, so he could be resurrected, and open up an opportunity for man to reunite with God. Wow. I mean, to me, that is just an absolutely amazing story. 
He wasn't born a prophet of tears or one of the sons of thunder. No, he laid aside his glory, laid aside his power, and showed up as a baby in a manger. That is so far beyond human understanding that we just accept it because it is. You know, we know the story is true. But wow, <laughs> no human would ever have written that script. So today we're going to look at the gift of joy. And our text today is out of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 10, it says, And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now we have in this verse the first sermon by the first evangelist since the birth of Christ. Right? And we know that there's a lot of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That is, prophecies that describe the coming of Jesus Christ and what it's going to be like and the life that he's going to have. But this is the first time that the announcement comes about the birth of Jesus Christ. Right? And so we have an angel that announces to these shepherds the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's the first coming of Jesus Christ on earth incarnate. As we know, there will be a second coming. Um, and we celebrate that with Advent, both the first coming and the future second coming. Now, it's not surprising to us that the preacher who announced the arrival of Jesus Christ was an angel. Right? Because if you recall, the one who announces the second coming of Jesus Christ is an angel too. If we go to uh, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Amen. I mean, that is the day we are looking forward to. Um, I just think it's amazing when you think about the, the, this, this, this arrival, the second coming of Christ, and, and the 24 elders literally fall on their faces before God. You know, that is the recognition of this holiness, this power that is coming uh, to reign. Now, that's a great day for us, not such a good day for unbelievers. Um, <laughs> but the keynote of this angel is joy, right? I bring you good news of great joy. Um, now, I suspect the shepherds acted the way any of us would. You know, you're out there under the stars taking care of the sheep, and all of a sudden an angel shows up, and they're like, ah, <laughs> scared, Right? Nature um, never seems to like the presence of God. You know, you look at through the Old Testament, most often when something angelic shows up, it's going to be a bad day. Um, Jewish tradition holds that those who hold supernatural appearances, or behold supernatural appearances, would surely die. So if you remember, right, what was blocking the entrance back into the Garden of Eden? An angel. What showed up to evaluate Sodom and declare its angels? 
Um, yeah, so in the Old Testament, angels showing up were rarely a good deal. So, of course, the shepherds are thinking, oh, this is not good. Um, but then the first words the angel says is, do not be afraid, for I bring good news of great joy. And at this point going forward, as believers, we have no fear before God. We don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen to us if we have an angelic visitor. Now, I personally think we interact with angels all the time. They're not, you know, white robes, big wings, and all that kind of stuff. But I think that we have angels in our presence all the time, you know. And I think we don't know it, but we, but we, um, we serve them because that's what we do. We serve people. And whether they're angels or not, we don't know. Um, I think of, there's a verse, um, I think it's Elijah, where he tells him, well, if you could just see, and he gives him the vision, and he can see this just giant army of angels fighting uh, against the, the forces of evil. And I think that's what's going on. I think my cat can see them. Um, <laughs> my cat's always reacting to things that nobody else can see. And so, <laughs> anyway, so, the, uh, so again, the gospel message is not just one of joy, but of great joy. Um, the great joy of the gospel message is the, both the greatest joy the human heart can possibly experience. I mean, there is no other joy um, that even compares. Um, the birth of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the end. Indeed, the whole creation celebrates the beginning of the end has occurred, for the second coming can't occur until the first coming occurs. So when the first coming occurs, they know that they can now anticipate the second one. We read in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I mean, if you think about that, the whole creation has suffered under the fall. Not just us personally, but the whole creation. And the whole creation groans, but with the birth of Christ, the whole creation knows, oh, it started. The first coming has occurred. We can now anticipate the second one's coming. So as we dig into this angelic gospel this morning, there's three things I want to look at. First, what is the nature of this joy? Second, to whom does this joy come? And finally, what is the sign of this joy? So the first part is, what is the nature of this joy? Now, earth has many joys. Now, I went through um, and looked up surveys on joy, of what people list as joy. Now, I find these kind of interesting. To me, so this is the top 10 of what I could find was the top 50 joys. Um, first one, number one, sleeping in a freshly made bed. Somebody likes that. I, you know, I, uh, I, I never made my bed, so um, I think I'm just going to get back in it. Um, number two, feeling the sun on your face. Number three, people saying thank you or a random act of kindness from a stranger. To me, that's two, but they listed it as one. Now, this one I can relate to. Number four, finding money in unexpected places. Number five, having time to myself. Number six, laughing so hard it hurts. 
Seven, snuggling on a sofa with a loved one. Now, that one, I can resonate. That's cool. Number eight, I absolutely relate to freshly made bread. <laughs> I, don't you love when it comes out of the oven and all that smells like bread? And you just like wait for it to cool off enough that you don't burn yourself cutting it and smother it with butter. And, oh, yeah. I got that one. Number nine, doing something for others. Number ten, the clean feeling after a shower. Some of these really seem kind of trivial, but I think those are the top ten. Um, I expected to see something like seeing a baby born or you know one of those kind of things. It didn't make the list. So, um, yeah, these, these things seem really trivial to me. And they're also non-permanent, i.e. they don't last. Right? Bread becomes stale. You know, take a shower, you're going to get dirty again. They don't last. But the joy we're talking about today is eternal and can't be reversed. It is evermore a fact that God is now in alliance with man. The joy we're talking about lasted throughout the ages and will last forever past the last trumpet sound. As Pastor Weezy shared a couple of weeks ago, the joy we're talking about is made full at the second coming. And the message is a simple one. For the time forward, it shall be joyous for the sons of daughter of man to be with God. We can rejoice because the Savior for the fallen has been born. And there will be peace and goodwill toward men and women forever and ever as long as there are glory to God in the highest. What a blessed thought. The star of Bethlehem will never set. We read in Luke 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is well pleased. Now, we see that the joy we're discussing is expressly associated in the glory of God. Uh, And the peace is with the people on earth. So if you recall... Because of the fall, there is enmity between God and man. And now that enmity has been ended through Jesus Christ. The great divide of man's fallenness between God's glory has now been bridged. There's a great song, I know it's an old one, about crossing the great divide. You know, the fact that uh, Jesus Christ bridged. And for those that... Recall the old evangelist process where on one side was man and on one side was God and then the cross was in the middle, right? Ah, The birth of Jesus Christ bridged the great divide that existed between man and God because of the fall. Um, Now, in the old days, wars were often ended by having a family member of the warring kingdom marry a family member of the other half. In other words, two warring countries, they could get arranged a marriage And that way, they would stop the war. So to me, it's pretty amazing. How joyous is the eternal union of Christ with his bride? Right? The ultimate eternal marriage between the church and Jesus Christ. We're his bridegroom. Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8 says, Let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen, fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
What a joyous marriage that will be. So the nature of this joy is eternal and it cannot be reversed. And it's between God and man. The divide between man and God is now bridged and it's celebrated in the eventual union of Jesus Christ and his bridegroom, the church. Now the second question is this. To whom does this joy come? So we read in verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The first to receive this great news was clearly the shepherds. But but fortunately, they were not the last. I hope everybody here has received the great news of the great joy. But more than that, I hope you've accepted the great joy. To hear the news and do nothing about it isn't going to work for you. You need to hear and act upon the great news of the great joy and accept Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that this great announcement of the arrival of the king would happen in some place big, like the temple, or at least a synagogue. But no, it happens out in a field to shepherds. Now, if you're familiar with shepherds were like the low of the low. Right? They're, they were, they were, if you were a shepherd, you were pretty low on the food chain. And if you were a shepherd at night out working with the, you were the low of the shepherds because nobody wanted the night job. Same like today, right? Who wants to work the late shift? Right? So you were a pretty lowly shepherd if you were working the night shift. But the Lord doesn't care of the greatness of man. The greatness of men and women doesn't matter to God. God cares for the lowly, the humble. And the part that's really amazing about it, it doesn't take intellect to understand the gospel message. You don't have to be brilliant to figure it out. The shepherds had probably no real training, most likely were illiterate, and yet the message came to them. Jesus came to save the humble and the infirm, not the proud and the mighty. We read in Matthew 11, verses 5 to 6, Those who are blind receive sight, and those who limp walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, and those who are deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is any person who does not take offense at me. How blessed we are to have a God who meets us where we are with the life-saving message of the gospel. Verse 10 concludes by saying, all the people. Now, if you look at the Greek, the original meaning of the term includes everybody, saved and unsaved. Now, historically, the Catholic Church excluded them, the unsaved, particularly as the Jews. If you're familiar with the way Rome was set up, there was a separate area completely for the Jews. They were not invited, if you will, to um, partake. But we have to include all people. Jesus is the savior of all nations. There is no nation out there that cannot be blessed by the words of scripture and the preaching of the gospel. And I really believe that the solution to the world today is that, the words of scripture and the preaching of the gospel. Now, the truth of Jesus Christ also frees people of any form of superstition because we have the true God 
brings forth the truth about the true Savior. But even those who don't choose to believe are still blessed by the great joy. Because as Christians, we can be a blessing to the world around us. Many of the social service organizations of the day are run by Christians. We feed the hungry, serve those that have suffered catastrophe, help the sick, on and on and on. The first hospitals were created by Christians. And if all of mankind accepted the truth of Jesus Christ, this would be a wonderful world to live in, right? No oppression, no hatred, no crime, no war, but that's unlikely to happen. But what we do have is us. See, if every Christian treated all those they meet the way that they would want to be treated as well, we'd make a big difference in the world. I think of what's going on here in the United States today, just treating people the way that Jesus wants us to treat people would make a huge improvement in the way we live our lives. You realize that 62% of the United States calls itself Christian. Imagine if 62% of the United States acted that way. It would be best if all Christians more fully behaved as Christians should. It's interesting, you read about the story of St. Augustine. Um, he describes in a dream about how he's convicted by his priorities. Right? In a dream, he stands at the gates of heaven, and the gatekeeper asks, who are you? And Augustine replies, I'm a Christian. And the gatekeeper replies, no, you're not. You're not Christian. You're a Ciceronian. For your thoughts and studies are directed at the works of Cicero, and you've neglected the studies of Jesus Christ. When Augustine awoke, he put aside his classics and studied the word of God. And we have benefited from his pen and his tongue ever since. We too can get lost in other matters. We too can make other things a priority. Some of us find it more comfortable to talk about our work, or science, or politics, or farming, or horses, or pleasure-seeking, or football teams, or whatever, other than Jesus Christ. And yet, that should be the first thing on our tongues, is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will never know the fullness of joy which Jesus brings unless the power of the life of Jesus Christ is in us every day, if it's our go-to, right? The highest blessings come to those who believe in the good news of great joy. And it's our responsibility to share that good news with everyone. I have a good friend of mine passed away. He had uh, pancreatic cancer. It was a long struggle. But in the hospital, anyone who knew him he had asked whether or not they knew Jesus Christ. He shared the gospel during those last months of his life like no other. It was amazing. He would not let anyone go by uh, unless he knew whether or not they accepted Jesus Christ. It was the first thing on his mind. For those that accept Jesus Christ, their eternity will be the same as ours. And if we truly love our brothers as we claim we do, we should care. For we walk in obedience with joy in our heart, and there will be peace everlasting at the second coming. We read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, 
Now it will come about that the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways and we may walk in his paths. For the law will go up from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations and will mediate for many people. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. What a concept, right? I mean, war has been part of mankind since Cain killed Abel. So to whom does this joy come? All people at least partially, but to believers this joy will come in fullness. And that should be our quest, is to share the message of the world so they too can share in this great joy. And the final question is, what is the sign of this joy? So again, the angelic messenger announces the arrival of the Savior of mankind. Now you would expect the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords the Savior, to arrive in power, right? If you didn't know better, you would think he would arrive on a chariot of fire like Elijah left on, right? You'd expect he'd be surrounded by an army of angels announcing his arrival. But no, that's not how his first coming occurred. He arrives as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. In the temporal world, power is shown by armies numbering in the thousands and swords and shields and chariots. But Jesus Christ has no space for the temporal world. He has no interest in it and therefore did not arrive with power of the temporal world. The weakness of his submissive gentleness is the true power and Jesus established his eternal power not on force, but on love. Now, you'd expect the birthplace of a king would be dazzling, that it would be, whoa, you know? You'd expect him wrapped in purple and fine linen, right? You'd expect him to have a cradle made of gold and a crown on his head, and Mary would have a tiara, and it would be this beautiful, but that's not what happened, right? No, his ma- a manger is his shelter, no crown on his head, his mother but a simple maiden and a baby wrapped in simple swaddling clothes. Gaudy thrones and pomp and circumstance and kings and queens do not make a nation great. Uh, And vain are those who live for it, those who think that power in the temporal world matters. True glory comes in truth and righteousness in peace and salvation in which the newborn king in peasants' clothes was the true symbol. He lived a peasant's life on this earth until he died on the cross for mankind's sins, rose on the third day, and returned to his place of glory. But when Jesus returns, a very different story, right? Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and stars will fall from the skies and the power of heaven will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast 
and they will gather the elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. First coming, baby in the swaddling clothes. Second coming, king with the armies. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend of mine, we argue a lot about eschatology. It's kind of fun. And, and so the, um, you know, the, the, the Left Behind series where all of a sudden people are gone and nobody knows why? Well, that doesn't fit with a great trumpet blast. I mean, I would figure if there was a great trumpet blast and half the people disappeared, okay, I got that. But <laughs> So it's fun. Eschatology is one of those things fun to argue about, nothing to get relationship issues over, though. It's just fun. Um, also, we don't see great wealth right in... in Bethlehem, right? He's, this isn't a merchant's family. He's not born in a mansion. He's no, no stately home. No, it's interesting that the world savior is surrounded in poverty, right? Mother's a carpenter's wife, just a simple dress. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It just amazes me that Jesus descended from the greatness of heaven in all of his glory to spend time on earth as incarnate man, as our Savior. Now, it's interesting, if you see pictures of this especially Renaissance pictures of the birth of Jesus. He's got a halo. Mary's got a halo. There's all this glory in the background. Yeah, it makes nice pictures, but that's not what happened. Um, he's born in a manger, resting on the same straw that the cattle ate. Certainly, we see in the nativity scene, right, there's always some cows and sheep and all that kind of stuff in there, right? And, um, but he's a plainest, simple birth of a child. Um, no cherubs, no halos. Because um, his message is the simplest of messages. Requires no special effects to be understood. It's interesting, I hear people say, well, if Jesus came today, it would be different. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't change anything. I mean, maybe you would be able to text him. But, the, um, you know, but as far as people receiving Jesus Christ, wouldn't change at all. Right? Um, the joy of this world does not need clever philosophy. You don't need to be a theologian to understand the sign of this joy. There's, there's nothing metaphysical here, right? Um, just a child in a manger and a Jewish woman looking on, nursing it, and a carpenter standing by. Pretty simple. Yeah, at some point, wise men showed up, but they showed up to adore him, not to teach him anything. Um, God's work is incredibly simple. John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. While incredible to ponder, it was the simplest to hear with human eyes and human ears. So what is the sign of this joy? A humble and selfless infant in whose birth, life, death, and resurrection brings hopes to the world and who brought joy, peace, love, and salvation to the world. 
I hope that you often pause and reflect on the great gift that we've been given in the joy of Jesus Christ that came to mankind as a babe in Bethlehem, later as the man of sorrows, the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. For all our hope is on incarnate God, whose gospel message is a simple gospel that we must share with a fallen world and express to them our deepest joy. Father, we are so grateful for the great gift that you've given us in our Savior. So grateful that he stepped down from glory and became man, fully God, fully man, yet limited by the world he was in. Did so out of love, lived a life, carried our sins, crucified, and resurrected on the third day. Lord, we are so grateful for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen.